0: Hello and welcome to the Redefining Human podcast. My name is Wahia Aeon and I am here to engage, educate and empower the world through conversation to get curious, to feel inspired about our future, to reimagine reality, redesign our identities and ultimately to redefine what it means to be human. Okay. Here we go. Hi Welcome to episode 0.1 of the Redefining Human podcast. I wanted you to take the first few episodes of this project to build a foundation for this project. Any strong house or organization needs a solid foundation to stand upon. If the foundation isn't solid, then the structure will eventually fall apart regardless of how well built it is. And so with the Redefining Human podcast, there are so many different topics and potential avenues for development that we could dive down in the coming months, years, however long I'm working on this for. And my expectations and projections, my vision of how things could turn out is inevitably going to change with every episode that is released and every interaction that occurs because of the content that I'm producing. So in order to ensure that the development of this podcast has a solid flow, that I stay on track As the developer of this podcast, and the host of this project and concept of redefining human, I'm going to take the first few episodes to create a foundation, a roadmap, a launch pad for the rocket ship that I intend to create with this podcast. We live in an astoundingly complex and often overwhelming world, human systems, ecosystems, space and time, politics, social norms and culture, language, art, science, technology, religion, entertainment, relationship, consumerism. The list of features and facets of human and non-human systems contributing to the ever-expanding storm of sensory stimulus is vast. And honestly, I would only do it a disservice to try and list every single aspect of existence. I believe that that act in and of itself is entirely impossible. However, even as the world and every conceivable facet of existence has changed and continues to change at an accelerating pace, one thing has remained constant within the human experience. A question. A curiosity that has been passed down through the generations, answered in a thousand different ways by tens of billions of different people, on every corner of the planet. The simple question, why? Why are we here? What is the meaning of all of this? What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? I'm a fan of the classic novel and feature film, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. A story in which a boringly normal man is swept into an extraordinary and absurd adventure. An absurd journey throughout space to discover the meaning of life. And among many others, the book and movie do a wonderful job at entertaining, playing with various science fiction concepts to create a goofy universe and take people out of daily life and into the stars. However, even though this book movie and many other forms of art and expression conversation within the attempt to answer this pertinent question, even though these are entertaining and enlightening, joyful, or the exact opposite, we've done a very poor job at answering this question, relatively speaking. And I'll come back to this point a little later in this episode But in order to better understand why I'm here, who I am, and what my intention is with this project that is Redefining Human, we need to put a bookmark in that question. We need to dog ear that page so we can turn back to it later and reference it once we have a little more information. My intention with this podcast is to influence the global conversation. My intention with this podcast is to create a foundational reference point for the current state of humanity. My intention with this podcast is to inspire and invigorate curiosity, creativity, and courage. That might sound vague, confusing, high in the sky, or just completely ungrounded. And I'll explain in a little more detail what I mean. And in order to do that, I am going to tell you a story. December 2018. I'm sitting in a small basement suite in Calgary, Alberta. All of the lights are out, in this tiny window on the top side of a wall, just above the ground, there's a little bit of light shining in from outside. But I'm on the opposite end of the room, sitting in front of my computer, with the glow of the screen lighting my face. And I'm scrolling, madly, endlessly. The kind of scroll where your finger never really stops moving. The the kind of scroll where you hear it and you wonder, what the hell could somebody be doing to have to scroll that much? Well, I was scrolling through Facebook and several other pages. I was just distracting myself. Honestly, refusing to engage with life because I feel so overwhelmed and so underwhelmed at the same time. If anybody has been depressed before, if you've ever felt the hopelessness and despair that the human mind is capable of occupying, then you'll know how I felt. And as I scroll incessantly, through these pages, I'm not really absorbing anything, observing anything, I'm just trying to escape from my thoughts. Because it's not just the screen that feels blurry, it's my life. For the last three months, I've been diving deeper and deeper into the whole of depression. I've been engaging less and less with society because I'm feeling more and more like my life is meaningless. Like I'm living a lie. Like I have some goal, mission, potential buried deep within me, but I'm not activating it. I'm not using it for anything beneficial. I'm not contributing to anything bigger than myself. And so I need to hide from that. And so here I am, in the basement, living off of savings, unemployed. I've pulled myself away from my social circles. I've stopped engaging with society. I'm becoming a hermit in one of the most populous cities in Canada. And I'm trying to find meaning, but I keep falling back into the same fucking holes the same habits, the same belief systems and patterns of behavior that I've been creating and reinforcing for the last six years. I thought I'd gotten away from them, but the joke's on me because they stick around until I choose to replace them with something better. And because I haven't taken the time to do that, they catch me when my guard is down. This has been the pattern for the last few days, specifically, and looking forward, this is probably going to be the pattern for God knows how long, until something changes, something kicks me out of my state of revelry, of self-deception and defeat, but who knows what that might end up being, or if that will ever happen. In this moment, I feel like my life is over, or I want it to be, but I'm just stuck in this cycle. And as I scroll through Facebook, a video pops up, and something about it catches my eye. And I take a deep breath, the title is powerful, the young girl in the video looks confident, angry even. Something about her eyes stops me. I take a moment, and then I press play, and this is what I hear.
1: My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old, and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of climate justice now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country, and it doesn't matter what we do but i've learned that you are never too small to make a difference and if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to but to do that we have to speak clearly no matter how uncomfortable that may be you only speak of green eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you.
0: I'm sure many of you have seen this video, have listened to this audio, have been impacted to some degree by this individual. This is the clip, the video, that put the climate movement on steroids. This is the catalyst to the global awakening and recognition of the climate emergency. After watching this video, I feel like I've been hit by a train, slapped in the face by a thousand people in sequence. I feel like I'm in shock. And so I watch it again and again, and again, five or six times, and then I share it on Facebook, and then I'm typing. I've opened up a Word document, and I'm writing about the severity of our circumstances, the necessity of action, and then I realize I don't know what I'm talking about. I had always been fairly climatologically sensitive, ecologically minded, and understanding that we as a species are one part of a vast network that is life on Earth. But I had never truly taken the time to understand what this meant. My siblings and I had a very unique childhood and upbringing, My parents are very unique individuals who chose a life direction that many would be too afraid to even consider. For the first year and a half of my life, I lived in a backpack as my mother and I walked or hitchhiked or drove from home to home until finally we settled on Cortez Island on the west coast of British Columbia. And on this island, I had freedom, the freedom to roam, to run and play on the edge of the ocean, the freedom to fall, to explore, to discover, to get hurt, to get dirty, and then to get up again and continue moving forward. I was heavily independent as a child, and I've heard many stories um, from my parents of times when my mom would leave me in my room or in my crib alone, and when she got back, I would be gone. My clothes would be left behind, and I would have taken the dog and gone on an adventure in the woods. Either that or just a rubbed poo all over the walls <laughs> out of anger for being left behind. Well on Cortez... My mom and I lived there for a reasonable amount of time, six months to a year. I'm not entirely sure of the duration. She met my stepdad, an incredibly passionate, inspired, intelligent, and ridiculously hardworking man who has a wide array of interests. But at the time, he was mentoring underneath a few people at Hollyhock. Which is a nonprofit organization on Cortez Island focused on creating meaningful experiences that inspire personal growth and social transformation. He was working in the garden and was learning about permaculture and horticulture and organic and regenerative agriculture. And over the course of his life, he's developed a deep knowledge and intuitive understanding of the relationship, the working relationship between humans and non-human life. My mom is a trained herbalist and has dedicated many, many years in her life to train herself to understand how to be self-sufficient. And combined, my parents set an incredible example for my siblings and I, where over the course of the next few years, up until the age of six, For myself, we moved between farms, organic farms, and I was raised in a very energetic atmosphere, surrounded by many people with different backgrounds and interests and skills and abilities, people from different countries who are coming to woof, woof or woofing stands for willing workers on organic farms, people who were traveling from foreign countries to stay and work and be a part of the communities that we lived in. And I was allowed to just roam freely, to engage with the gardens, to eat dirt, to chase sheep, to play with chickens, to roll in the chicken house, which my mom hated because they had these little termites that would crawl underneath their feathers. And every time I would go in there, I'd get covered in these things. And every once in a while, We would refill the wood chips in the chicken house. It was either wood chips or straw. Something really itchy, but I loved rolling in this. In this nasty feathery dust, getting splinters and just irritated skin from the pokey itchy straw or wood chips, whichever one it was, but also getting covered in chicken mites. (laughs) Absolutely disgusting. (laughs) Not something I would do now. Thinking about rolling naked in straw in a chicken coop is the last thing that I want to do with my time now. So obviously, I've grown and changed as as a person. Thank God. When I was six years old, my parents and I along with my sisters, moved to the property that they now live on where my younger brother was born. And this property is in the middle of nowhere, using that terminology in the most appropriate application possible in a very rural setting. Our closest neighbors were nine kilometers away, the closest community with a grocery store, more of a convenience store, really. It was about 15, 16 kilometers away. And the closest community, Caslow, British Columbia, with a population of around 950 to a thousand on the off season is about 56 kilometers away. So I grew up with total isolation, no electricity, intermittent electricity. And then we started getting generators and now they have a solar system. But in the first few years, we would get headlamps every Christmas. We would sled down the driveway on our way to school. If there was a big snow day, we wouldn't have any electricity, and at night we would read books beside the propane lamp in the living room as the drywood floors allowed cold air to slowly waft through the cracks. We were very close and connected, as a young family, a unit. All of us living in this classic setting that the most appropriate depiction would be Little House on the Prairie. And we often watched Little House on the Prairie once we had a laptop and the ability to do so. But for the many, many years, our entertainment was strictly outdoors and creative, carving swords and fighting ferns, pretending to be power rangers and trying to beat up the dogs, but they were much bigger than us. (laughs) And riding bikes, going for walks, exploring and adventuring. For the vast majority of my young life, I was faced daily with a deep interconnected and recognized dependency on the world around me. The non-human world in particular, because we were so isolated from society and civilization. And so, when I watched Greta's video, and I started typing, when I started writing, I felt like I was in a position to, to adequately explain, describe, tell the story of what was going on with the climate crisis, with the ecological emergency, with the collapse and destruction of the biosphere but I very quickly came to the realization that I needed to learn more. So for the next month and a half, I dive into the research head first. I'd already been distancing myself from society, isolating myself, and instead of feeling sorry for myself, I was now motivated. I had a goal and a purpose. After watching Greta speak, I realized, we're in a really precarious predicament as a species. I was hit with this sense of helplessness, hopelessness, and I very quickly came to the realization that I could either choose to continue feeling sorry for myself, living my life as I had, walking down the same path that I had been tracing day in and day out for the past few months. And that road would lead to a very shallow, sad, empty shell of myself. Or I could choose to recognize that this was an opportunity. I was being shown the crisis, the emergency, the necessity of action. And I was in a position, a unique position based on my childhood, my experiences in the past and my perception of the world in reality, I was in a very unique position to begin helping to find a solution to the issue. So I buried myself in research. I started with the basics, getting to understand the ecological systems on the planet and focusing on carbon and the impact of the use of fossil fuels. And that was pretty easy. came to the realization that there are around 70 million vehicles sold annually that around five and a half pounds of carbon dioxide is released for every liter of gasoline burned and that on average there are between 30 and 50 liters in a gas tank that on average there are between 20 and 35 refills per car per year so doing the math realizing the impact that the use of combustion engine vehicles had on the environment was astounding. It was exhilarating to finally comprehend why people were saying what they were saying about fossil fuels. After that, I dove into renewable energy technology. Solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, Hydro is astounding, wind is incredible, solar is so powerful, tidal energy, the fact that with geothermal you can design a passive home, heat and cool your home based on the internal temperatures of the earth? Astounding, incredible, why didn't I learn this in school? Then I dove into pollution, plastic and chemical, and that led me into a deep dive analysis of the global supply chain. The process of extraction, production, distribution, consumption, and waste, and the storage required between each of those points. I dove deep into mining, forestry, fishing, and eventually, agriculture. Throughout this process, I was trying to identify different things that I could do in my life to reduce my footprint. And through this process, I realized that my footprint, in comparison to the average Canadian, was pretty good relatively speaking it was it was lower but it was nowhere near where it needed to be because as we live and exist on this planet we're generally in two states in relation to our impact on the planet we're either consuming or we're contributing and for the vast majority of human existence almost all of us are in a state of perpetual consumption, a state of extracting resources and energy out of the systems on this planet that have evolved and developed over the course of hundreds of millions of years. They're delicate. They're very complex, deeply integrated interdependent networks that when destabilized to any degree have a ripple effect. If any organism within the global network of life is destabilized, to any degree, the structural integrity of the global web of life is destabilized. After analyzing my life and checking off boxes, identifying the points in which I could have the most impact on the planet, and what I could change in order to reduce my consumption and increase my contribution, I ended up coming to diet. I started to recognize that animal agriculture is the number one contributor to the climate crisis in terms of ecosystem destabilization, the resulting extinction rates, excessive emissions, pollution, the impact on human and animal well-being, global land use, water use, and resource consumption in general. And I very quickly came to the realization that I had to make a change for the last few years. I'd been heavily focused on nutrition and exercise, and I'd fallen into the classic stereotype of high protein, low fat, low carb, and I was eating whole foods, but the majority of my protein was coming from animal products. And it didn't take a long time, a couple of hours really of dedicated, honest, research to come to the conclusion that I was going to go vegan. And so overnight, I changed my diet entirely. And to this day, I haven't looked back. I identify as a vegan. I have no qualms with the concept of veganism and my perception and understanding of being vegan has changed significantly in the last two years. But I cannot foresee myself ever going back. After watching Greta and doing research, I also decided that I needed to play a part in this movement. I needed to contribute in a bigger way. I was learning more and understanding more. And the more I understood, the more terrified I became, the more motivated I became to make a difference. Even today, the conversation in regards to the climate emergency is dull at best. Damp at best. Most people don't want to admit that there's a problem. Many people say that there isn't and actively oppose people who say there is. And the rest of us live our lives feeling like there's nothing we can do on our own to change the world. And this is the case with most aspects of existence. It is a very small percentage of individuals who have had the courage and the integrity to step out of their comfort zone and into the spotlight of a judgy humanity, living their dreams and bringing their creative aspirations and ideas into reality. Watching Greta's video and her fearlessness, facing global leaders and telling it like it is. Not only that, but saying they were immature. Essentially, they had to grow up and stop leaving the hard work to children. To hear that from a 15-year-old, I can't even imagine how angry frustrated embarrassed some of these 65 year old politicians must have felt watching greta express herself inspired me to begin to do the same and the first inspiration i had was to start an instagram page to start posting educational content and memes to get the conversation going on instagram at the time there were very few people doing this And so in January of 2019, a week or two after watching Greta's video, I started my Instagram account, started posting, started getting some traction. And at the same time, I decided I needed to get out of Calgary. I had hopes, dreams, visions, aspirations, ideas of how I wanted my life to go, but I wasn't doing anything to get myself there. I had hopes, dreams, visions, aspirations, and ideas of how I wanted to influence the conversation of the climate. But I was living in the oil and gas epicenter of Canada, where if you bring up the climate crisis in conversation on the train, you get laughed at. Or if it's late at night and you're in the wrong area, you might get threatened, beat up. So first goal, start influencing the conversation. How can I do that? What do I have right now? What resources can I utilize in order to impact as many people as possible? I have Instagram. I have social media. I can get the word out online. Okay, fantastic. Now what do I need to do? I need to get into a different environment. This was terrifying. This was so scary to consider. And for context, I left bc to go to calgary to start my life to be independent to strive towards a greater version of myself to create myself to carve a new version of wahya out of this block of granite that was me at the time and i ended up depressed (laughs) alone in a basement in southwest calgary But, I knew that I needed to change, and I knew that the only way that I was going to get involved was to go somewhere where I could be involved. And I didn't have many options available to me, so I decided I was gonna go home for a little while to get some breathing room, go back to where my parents lived, stay with them for a couple of weeks, I didn't have a set plan, I had no idea of what I was going to do. And then my mom shared a, a post with me about this place called the Ashodra Ashram on Kootenai Lake in British Columbia, this beautiful retreat center for yoga and spiritual practice. And at the time, I was starting to get a little more sensitive and curious about the exploration of consciousness, meditation and reflection. But it was still very woo-woo and scary for me. It was very unfamiliar, so I resisted, obviously. Her recommendation was to go to the one-month karma yoga program, and I shut it down. It was like, I cannot handle getting that uncomfortable, stepping away from everything that I know. And then, over the course of a few weeks, As I'm managing the Instagram account, thinking about this, how can I get out of this city? I started to realize that I'm already in a very uncomfortable position. I already want to be involved in the climate movement to some degree. I've always loved the idea of the classic hero's journey, where this underdog, This insignificant individual is sucked into this grand adventure of uncertainty, trials and tribulations, challenges. And when they overcome them, they're transformed into a powerful version of themselves. An aspect of themselves that was there all along, but had to be awoken, reminded, trained, invigorated, revitalized. So after a lot of resistance... I opened up the document that I had filled in maybe 10, 15% of. And I started typing. And I wrote about my current emotional state. I wrote about the fact that I needed help. And this is the first time that I had really admitted this to myself. I started writing about this feeling that I had. Where I would wake up daily and it felt like there was this dark shadow self. That was just on the boundary of my perception, floating around me and watching over everything I did, said, and thought. And every time I had sort of an empowering idea, feeling, experience, and felt good about myself, this shadow would cloak over my perception and integrate itself deep into my neural circuitry and start exercising narratives of insignificance and inadequacy. I was actively convincing myself that I was worthless, and I wrote to the ashram that I wanted to come and do the Karma Yoga program and get help to start a new chapter in my life and to get a vantage point on my life, to, to, to occupy a different perspective, to just observe and get some space to breathe. I felt like I was suffocating, and I was accepted. So, I packed my bags, without any plans other than Ashram, Instagram, Youth Climate Movement. I packed my bags and I left Calgary. I went home. There is a phenomenon, a psychological mechanism that I've been exploring in the last few months. But I've been curious about it for many, many years. And this mechanism is correlated to identity. We don't just identify ourselves or understand our identity based on who we feel we are. We also identify ourselves based on who we think other people think we are. And in addition to that, I hypothesize that we also identify ourselves based on the things in our environment. If you have ever come across a book that you read or a journal that you wrote in 10 years prior, you might know what I'm talking about, where you open a passage and read a line and you're transported back into the moment when you last experienced that. This incredible ability for us to associate moments in time, emotions, memory to objects, and I love this, particularly with the book The Golden Compass. I remember vividly reading this book in a crabapple tree on my parents' property when I'm 10 or 11 years old. And I can transport myself back into the moment where I can smell the blossoms on the tree. I can hear the dogs barking, I can hear my I can hear my siblings playing somewhere in the distance. And I've been realizing more and more lately that depending on what you have around you, your environment, the objects that you own, because I wake up in the morning and I put on a a pair of clothes. I've had these clothes for a while and they remind me of who I have been. And in some ways, they set the standard for how I behave moving forward. When I left Calgary, after having lived in... This environment for an extended period of time and developed these associations and reference points for my behavior and identity And I went back home To the place that I was raised and grew up in, and Had disassociated myself from I had a very interesting experience Walking through the farm Down the trails that I used to play in Looking at the trees that I used to climb Playing with the dogs exploring the forest, hiking with my little brother on the ridge above our property. For a while, I felt completely free, like a different person, and it was invigorating. I was at my parents' property for about three weeks. The retreat at the ashram started in March, and I moved back out early to mid-February. And I was working out one day at the small local gym at the hall in Meadow Creek, population of maybe 30 <laughs> on a good day. The local region has about 400 people spread throughout multiple different communities, all very, very small. I was at the gym working out and I got a message from a young woman who's now a close friend named Alyssa Tabereau. And Alyssa messaged me saying, Hey. I'm a part of Fridays for Future Nelson. I'm organizing a strike, and we're looking for people to do speeches. I've seen your content online and the messages and the posts that you're making. I like the way that you communicate. What do you think about coming and doing a speech at the strike? (sighs) I'm not going to scream because that would be really loud in this microphone. I also just gave myself a cramp from breathing in and then holding it really strangely. My neck hurts. (laughs) Yes! Fuck! Yes! This is what I've been waiting for! I left Calgary with three intentions. Ashram, Instagram, climate movement. I'm working out, and I got an invitation not just to attend a movement, a climate strike, which, by the way, I had no idea was happening, but to do a speech. At the climate strike to share the information that i've been learning in a situation where people are ready to listen to what i have to say oh my god so yeah i agreed i i, I applied i said yes please i would love to do that thank you so much for the opportunity And the strike was happening a day before I had to go to the ashram. I had about a week and a half to prepare. So immediately, I just started writing, trying to develop ideas. And then I stopped for a while. And I was like, oh, I'm so anxious. I don't know what I'm going to write about. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. So I'm just going to leave it alone for a while. This is my tendency to procrastinate to hold things off until the last moment, and for a very long time, this was fairly advantageous. I found school to be pretty easy, I skipped 60% of my grade 11 classes and passed, and I have the ability to squeeze a lot of bullshit out in a very short period of time, just enough to scrape by. And so I, I procrastinated on writing this speech. And I use a tool in my writing called Grammarly, which is incredible for sentence structure and just ease of flow with vocabulary and articulation in the written form. And it also has this convenient tool that tells you how long it will take to speak written word. I had five minutes to squeeze my speech into, and the night before, I'm writing frantically trying to figure out exactly what and how to say what i want to say i want to talk about plastic pollution chemical pollution ocean acidification the deterioration of soil on this planet carbon sequestration and the fact that we need to start focusing solely on regeneration instead of this ridiculous adaptation and mitigation That we need to start focusing on rebuilding and revitalizing and reconciling with the planet or else we will not have an opportunity to do so when we begin to realize that we should have started a long time ago i wanted to write about the fact that politicians aren't paying attention but that we need to focus on creating solutions instead of demanding solutions. That the majority of people don't know what to do, or how to do what needs to be done, and some of us, who are willing to put the time and effort into exploring the possibilities, are in a very important position, where we need to take responsibility to start introducing ideas to people creating a nest for creativity and inspiration, setting an example and giving others permission to get curious. I can articulate that much more effectively today than I could at the time because I've had practice. At the time, I was shitting my pants, (laughs) anticipating doing a speech. The only experience I had speaking in front of people was grade 11, Where I had the opportunity to join a mock debate, and I had the topic of cannabis legalization. I put a ton of time into preparing this presentation. And on the day of presentation, I walked up in front of the class and immediately just started shaking. I was so nervous. And I had this very simple joke to read out. The joke to begin my presentation went something along the lines of, Hey, did you hear about that guy who died from a marijuana overdose? Ha. Me neither. And as I'm trying to deliver this, I start justifying the fact that I have a joke to share with the class. Literally, there were six people in the class. And this is a class of on average 45 students. 6 people showed up. And I am on the verge of peeing my pants. And so I'm standing there sweating from my armpits, my elbows, my kneecaps, places where I didn't even know there were sweat glands. And I read, "Did you hear the b- about the guy who died from Smoking, marijuana, me neither. <laughs> that was my experience talking in public. I was terrified of judgment, criticism, ostracization, typical fears. But I grew up in social isolation. The school that I went to when I was living in British Columbia had about 350 kids. The town, on the best day, had maybe a thousand. And the high school that I went to in Calgary had almost 3,000 students. I went from interacting with an average of four or five people per day, running into an average of maybe 20 to 35. And these are people that I grew up around, and I would have panic attacks. To living in a city where I'm taking public transportation From my house to the school. And in that time period, I am encountering triple the average population to what I was used to. And as soon as I walk into the doors at school, I'm bombarded by the sea of people. So no wonder I skipped 60% of my grade 11 classes. I was terrified. I stayed at home and I played Minecraft. So in preparation for this Speech. This public speech. I'm terrified, and I've done so much work on getting better at communication and expression and confidence and being myself. But I am terrified. And so, eleven thirty rolls around, and I finish writing the speech. And I'll find this someday to read it to you because it was it was decent. I managed to get it in in under five minutes. But the real story begins. When I get to the strike, the drive from home to the strike is about two hours. So I leave in the morning with my brother. We pick up his friend. We get into town, and it's this beautiful day, absolutely frigid. We're all in our jackets. We walk to the strike site. My brother has a sign that he made. My brother's friend, I'm pretty sure he had a sign, too. There are signs and banners that are starting to be put up at the strike site microphones and speakers and i walk over and i meet Alyssa and her friends the original founders of fridays for future nelson and introduce myself say thank you for this opportunity i'm very excited to to be a part of this i've been wanting to be a part of something like this for quite a few months now i was inspired by greta and i'm just so excited to be here thank you And people start showing up, 5, 10, 50, around 115, maybe 130 people end up gathering at the strike. And we're doing chants, and people are speaking passionately, and then it's my turn. It's my turn to stand in front of everybody and to tell them what I wrote. And I threw the other piece of paper, so I'm just going to grab another one to give you a demonstration. (laughs) I love doing this. I feign confidence. I'm hyperventilating, but I think I'm walking in a way that makes people think that I know what I'm doing. I'm here with a purpose. I'm here to deliver a message, and you're going to hear it. But inside, I'm dying slowly. (laughs) And so I walk up to the, the, the space where the microphone is standing and I'm shaking a little bit, but I make sure to move the paper away from the mic so that you can't hear the ruffles. And if you do, I could just say like, oh, it's the wind. It's cold. It's cold wind. I'm like, No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it is. Look over there. Oh, I've disappeared now. I'm standing there and kind of freaking out I'm cold. It's it was a really cold day. My nose is like kind of numb. And I, I realize, like, I'm pumped full of adrenaline, I'm terrified, and I'm cold. This is not a great combination to speak. When I get cold, I can barely pronounce the alphabet. My lips don't want to move. So when I'm cold, hyped up on adrenaline, and nervous, is not a good sign. Don't book speaking gigs when those three energies are converging. And so I realized that I need to start moving a little bit. I need to loosen up. So I start jumping. I just start jumping around and people are looking at me like, what's going on? I'm like, what, yeah, I'm jumping. And there are over a hundred children and some adults staring at me. I have this piece of paper, I'm wasting their time. So I need to get them jumping with me. And I realized like, oh shit, like this is a great way to raise up the energy to get blood flowing in my body, but to make it look like I'm just trying to help them. You guys are cold. I can see clouds coming out of your mouths and it looks like your snot is freezing on your face. Like, let's get moving. Let's get some energy flowing. so I start jumping and I get them jumping with me. I get the energy up in the room and I start to feel a little bit better, but now I'm out of breath. (laughs) So I have to take a couple of deep breaths and there is a high probability in future episodes that I will be out of breath when I start recording. So just bear with me. I'll probably try and do a slick Rick move and make it a meditation practice, breathing practice, (laughs) get everybody into the moment while I'm just trying not to die of asphyxiation. I get everybody jumping, calm them down. I take a couple deep breaths and I start reading. two minutes in, I realize the fear is gone, that I'm here with a message and a purpose That I'm here to change lives, to share wisdom and information, to empower evolution, discovery, realization, integration of knowledge. And I wrap up the speech. And I get a round of applause. And I feel hyped. My life coach friend is in the crowd and he's giving me two thumbs up. Thanks, Brody. This is sick. I did it. And then it's over. And people start dispersing and they have things to do they have to go home and unpack the, the setup at the strike put things away go and do homework and i'm standing there almost just scratching my head i didn't realize it at the time but i had put this moment on a pedestal i'd convinced myself that i was in a unique position That after all of the months of research that I'd done, all the preparation that I'd done, my unique perspective and experience in life, that this was all going to combine and converge into this beautiful opportunity where I would speak at the strike and I would be discovered. Somebody would record me, post it on social media, and it would spread like wildfire. A local politician would hear what I had to say and they would congratulate me and invite me to become the new mayor. I don't know, some weird recognition that I was craving. But that didn't happen. (laughs) I spoke, I got a thank you, and people started going home. And this was the very beginning of, up until that point, what had been a really long, arduous process of ego death. Many children go through this. Where we're born into the world dependent upon our parents. And we develop this sense of I. We become the center of our universe. And I was having a Galileo moment. Where, similar to how Galileo revealed that humanity is not the center of the universe. And was then ostracized and had his life threatened by the church. I had a moment of realization where I was like, oh, shit, I'm not the center of the universe. I am not that critical component to this movement that will result in the acceleration and transcendence of humanity. And then my ego was like, oh, no, no. Shame on you. God hates you. Devil hates you. Everybody hates you. Shut up. If you continue speaking, we're going to hang you. We're going to strip you naked and make you run through the streets ego put me in a position of, like, no, no, fuck that. Ignore that. That's not true. You're great. You're awesome. But it was too late. My ego had shattered just a little bit. Crack on the surface. And at the time, it was painful. It was confusing. Because I had built so much expectation into this moment that I didn't know what was going to happen next. But fortunately, I didn't have to. Because the day after that, I was going to start my one month karma yoga program at the Ashodra Ashram. And so feeling pretty high on life and also really sad that I didn't have a five second of fame moment that launched me into the stratosphere at the climate strike, I drove home with my brother and his friend. We dropped his friend off, went home and I started packing. And the next morning I left to go to the Ashodra Ashram. I arrived there and I met Chuck, an amazing man. Chuck, if you're listening to this, thank you for all of the wisdom that you've provided me in my life. Thank you for the duty that you uphold at the ashram. Thank you for the service that you provide to other people in helping them on their spiritual journey. I met Chuck and I was directed to my lodgings and I realized, shit, I'm here for one month, I don't know anybody. I don't know anything about meditation, spirituality, I know some like surface level stuff, like I've downloaded Calm a couple times, and I've done like five to 10 minute guided meditations, but most of the time I'm just thinking about when can I open my eyes and go on to something else. I've been introduced to yoga because like my parents have done yoga in the past, but I also grew up in a very close-minded community where it was almost like this 50-50 split between the hillbilly and the hippie. Very spiritually enlightened tantric revolutionaries and people who just want to light tires on fire and drink beer out of boots. Very confusing cross-contamination collaboration thing going on between these two groups of people, and there's a cohesive synergistic relationship, but it's mostly founded on sarcastic respect. That's what I grew up with, thinking, I don't know if meditation is woo-woo or amazing. I don't know if yoga is energizing or depleting. I don't know if, I, I don't know. And now I'm at the ashram for a month. Karma yoga is selfless service. In the karma yoga program, I was working between five and seven hours a day, at the ashram integrated into the community and helping to perform basic maintenance chores, cleaning, washing dishes, cooking food, sustaining and maintaining the environment around the ashram. And if you ever have the opportunity to go to an ashram, but specifically the Ashodra ashram, I highly recommend it. It is an amazing community full of beautiful people. It is seriously one of the most relaxing energizing spaces I have ever been the temple is gorgeous I'll link the I'll link the ashram show notes (laughs) shout out to the ashram I was there for a month and over the course of that month one of the things I told myself was I'm not going to use my phone at all but one of my goals leaving Calgary was to manage Instagram so that didn't last very long and Many, many nights I stayed up until 11 or 12 a.m. responding to people, posting, finding new content to post, doing research, and educating myself further on the climate crisis. I downloaded Blinkist as an app, accidentally bought the premium version, and I can remember the heart attack that I felt at the time because I had very little money to my name. And so I saw this $130 charge approval show up in my email and just had a moment of, oh God, I need that to survive. But fortunately, I'm at the ashram, all of my food, my lodging, everything's provided to me. I have no bills at the time, so maybe I can just use this as an opportunity to start learning more. So I did that. I started listening to a ton of audiobooks on Blinkist, saving a lot of time and getting incredible nuggets of wisdom and information. I started practicing some of the dream work and meditation. I went to the morning yoga sessions at 6 a.m. I started doing cold dips. I started really allowing myself the space and freedom to get curious about consciousness, to start exploring myself, to start reflecting on my thoughts, meditating on my identity. And my life changed dramatically. I started opening up more, trusting myself more. And this was the beginning of my spiritual journey. I was there for a month, met some incredible people. And one of the women, one of the women, not sure why I'm having difficulty with this word. One of the women, Danny who I met at the time, this beautiful, vibrant Irish woman, became my girlfriend a few months after I left the ashram. We were together for a while, and I'll potentially talk about that in the future. I'm going to ask her for permission first, though. While at the ashram, I had this incredible opportunity, not only to be a different person, to express myself as being a different person, to explore conversation and begin letting loose in a safe space. I also had the opportunity to do another presentation, another speech. The ashram was very curious about my position on the climate, my participation in the movement. They weren't very educated on what was going on, but they were aware that there was a growing revolution led by youth. And I was a youth, and I had just done a climate speech the day before coming to the ashram. I was very excited to engage people further, and I was having conversations left and right about the state of the world, but the opportunity that it represents. Focus on the opportunity. One day, I got an offer from one of the swamis to do a talk. And there were these classes that were hosted fairly frequently, and I forget what they're called, but... Every week or so, somebody with a specific understanding or interest would create a presentation and present to the entirety of the ashram. And I had the opportunity to do this on climate. So once again, I'm in this incredible position. We're leaving Calgary. My goals were ashram, Instagram, climate movement. The Instagram account is growing rapidly. I'm at the ashram, I've faced a fear. And I have the opportunity for the second time in a month to do a presentation on the climate crisis. But this one was different. Because this one I had been influenced by the community. This one I had had time to think about the nature of the issue. More importantly, I had the time and space to begin reflecting and considering myself. Who I was, who I thought I was, who I thought I was being, and who I was being, and based on that, who I was preventing myself from becoming. I had the opportunity to realize that the majority of the issues in my life were based on my beliefs, my Actions, and I was the only one who could change that. And so my speech at the ashram was heavily influenced by that realization, coming to the conclusion that has ultimately led to the statement the state of the world is determined by the actions of the individual multiplied by the collective. At my time at the ashram, I was introduced to a book called Utopia for Realists by a man named Rudger Bregman. And he exposed me to many different aspects of reality. Specifically, universal basic income and the development of utopia. But most importantly, in his words, not verbatim, obviously, please don't sue me, Rudger Bregman, for misquoting you. At some point in human history, we forgot how to dream. We set down our sails on the boat of evolution. We took our eyes off of the land of opportunity far in the distance, and we settled for the mundane. This hit me so hard. This inspired me so deeply. For the first time, I had a reference point in a book for what I was feeling, that there was opportunity, that the land of opportunity, the land of utopia was possible, it was there, it was in existence, it was within human grasp, but but the only reason that we hadn't actualized that, realized that, built it, and discovered it, the only reason we weren't living in a utopia, was because we forgot how to dream. Yes, I am a dreamer. For a dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight, and his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. Those are the words of Oscar Wilde from The Critic as Artist. There's only one thing that makes a dream impossible to achieve, and this is the fear of failure. Those are the words of Paulo Coelho from The Alchemist. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Those are the words of Langston Hughes. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one those are the words of john lennon to say i was inspired by this book is an understatement to say i was informed by this book is giving credit where it's due in the presentation to the ashram i spoke from the heart i spoke about my dreams i spoke about the possibilities the potential of humanity. And I was transported back in time to a moment when I was 18 years old and I came across the concept of the Kardashev scale. The Kardashev scale simply explained is a tool, a scale to measure the technological advancement of a civilization. And I'll link this in the show notes as well. Level one is civilization or species being able to harness the energy potential of their planet. Level two is solar system. Level three, galaxy. And on and on and on. I was inspired by this and science fiction because of just the possibility, the magnitude of the cosmos, which I was introduced to through Carl Sagan, and the incredible potential in terms of exploration, self-discovery, and self-actualization that our species had. It was very apparent to me that the greatest existential threat, the barrier between where we are and our self-realization and actualization, there are many different aspects that make up that wall that we have to scale. But the primary one, the first block on that wall... It was a climate crisis, the single greatest existential threat to life on earth. Something that affects us all and all other species. This is what I spoke to in my presentation to the ashram. And once again, I got a round of applause, but this time it was different. This time people came up to me afterwards and said, thank you. Thank you for painting a different picture. Thank you for educating me on the severity of the issue, but thank you for leaving it on a high note. I feel more inspired now than I did before. I feel more informed now than I did before. And quite often, those two don't go hand in hand when we're talking about the climate crisis. Thank you. And that impacted me. Towards the end of my stay at the ashram, I felt like a different person. I felt confident, secure in myself. I felt ready to go back into the world and engage. And my Instagram account, in the time that I'd been there, had grown from 1,000 followers to 9,000 followers. So I left the ashram. The day that I left the ashram, I packed up my bags and got a ride to the ferry. I didn't have a ride scheduled to get back home. And so I was standing there on the ferry going across Kootenai Lake. Loving every single moment of it. Talking to one of my friends that I'd met at the ashram, basking in the sunlight, watching the water reflect the light from the sun, the clouds, the mountains. It was gorgeous. Feeling the wind in my hair and on my face. I'm just excited. Excited for the next step in life. I hitchhiked home. And over the course of the next few weeks, I continued to fuel my inspiration, to get connected with people, to start working on doubling down on the growth and development of my Instagram account, which once again at the time was called The Condition of Life. While I was at the ashram, I was messaged by somebody. Somebody who said, hey, I saw your speech at the climate strike in Nelson. And I was wondering if we could meet and talk. And Donna Campbell is one of my close friends, an incredibly powerful woman, motivated, clear of thought, intelligent, inspirational. She came to the ashram and we we spoke. And I talked about how we stand at a crossroads. We have two choices. The first is inaction, continue with business as usual, and the inevitable result of that is extinction. The second choice that we have is action, informed action, compassionate action, intelligent and appropriate and relevant action, creative, collective action. And the inevitable consequence is evolution, possibility, opportunity. Change is scary and uncomfortable, but change is the only place in which growth occurs. Outside of the comfort zone is when we adapt and evolve. And the opportunity for humanity is incredible, immense, unimaginable, beautiful. We spoke about this and she mentioned it'd be great to have me speak sometime at the Langham in Caslow. A organization, central hub of music and speech and entertainment in the local community, Kasla, where I went to school before moving to Calgary. She spoke about the Langham, spoke about the climate movement, mentioned my voice was needed. In a time of great turmoil and uncertainty, I was spreading a message that was different and empowering. And at the time, I was not confident in myself to the degree that I am today because I didn't know myself to the degree that I do today. I wasn't familiar with myself as I am today. I have a lot of work to do, a lot of demons to explore and befriend and become familiar with. I have a lot of habits that I still need to identify, belief systems that I still need to foster and create, seeds that I need to plant today so that I can reap the benefits in 5, 10, 15, 50 years down the road. But I am in a much different place right now than I was when we had that conversation. And so I left. I went back home, back to Meadow Creek, and I started engaging with the Instagram account heavily. And this is around April. For May, June, July, I spent my time in Meadow Creek in an isolated community, working on the climate movement, trying to exercise, but getting kind of frustrated with my life because I felt trapped. I had very little money. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was living with my parents in an isolated space. I had relatively stable internet, but that was intermittent at best. And I wanted to engage, to get busy, involved, to take action. And to start influencing the conversation and the momentum and direction of human evolution. But I had to be patient. So I accepted a job working with invasive species for BC in a local park. And I would bike there every single day. And I would spend six to eight hours daily walking around and digging up burdock. Which I have opinions about. (laughs) Honestly, I think it's a fucking waste of time. But only in that particular application. There are definitely invasive species that are dangerous. But generally, they're only recognized because of the impact that they'll have on human well-being. Not the actual role that they're playing within an ecosystem. That said, there are some invasive species that do represent a significant threat because of the rate of growth and destabilization that will occur within the ecosystem that they're inhabiting. But for the most part, I think it's a waste of time to dig up burdock. <laughs> I'm tempted to pause the recording and start over, but I'm not going to. I was working this job, and towards August, A woman named Abra Brin, who was running for the Green Party position for the federal government. She was working to become an MP in the parliament. She reached out to me and asked me if I'd be open to meeting with her and discussing her campaign. And so we met in Caslow one day, this beautiful sunny day, and we start talking. And she says, you know, there might be a management position open for me. There might be an opportunity for you to get involved with my campaign and start making some money. And in order to do that, I'm going to need you to live in Nelson, British Columbia. I was ecstatic. This was an incredible opportunity for me to be a part of something that I hadn't experienced before. So I said, yeah, Totally. Let's continue talking over the course of the next few weeks and months. And something that I left out, which is like in in recollection of, of the last year and a half, a lot has happened. And so it's likely that I will miss out on things and have to jump back. In May, I had the opportunity to take a trip down to Victoria with a group of people, one of them being Donna, who I met at the ashram. A group of people called the Citizens Climate Lobby who gather together and lobby politicians about the climate. The majority of lobby groups that politicians see on a daily basis represent massive industries. Industries like the animal agriculture industry, fossil fuel, mining, the extraction of resources and the pollution of the planet for profit. An act that I now lovingly refer to as ecocide, which I'll explain in greater detail in the future. I had the opportunity to go down to Victoria and to meet with politicians, something that I didn't think I would ever do, because I don't like politics. Politics is confusing, a battleground of emotion and judgment and criticism, majority of the time occupied by man-children who are completely absorbed with their position of power and just trying to remain popular so they can continue sustaining the status quo. that was my perception of politics. And I had this opportunity to go and meet with said politicians with the context of the climate. I was going to be a youth representative with the, the Citizens Climate Lobby. So, of course, I said, hell yes. That's an amazing opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. This is incredible. Everything is paid for. I go down with a group of people and I have conversations with people who can create change amazing So we get down there to Victoria and I'm stoked once again in a completely unknown environment where I can be Whoever I want to be so I decide I'm gonna be confident. I'm gonna be clear and I am going to speak with honesty I am going to say what needs to be said I'm going to embody Greta and I'm gonna tell them to their face. You are not mature enough And so you leave even this job To children. That's perfect. But that wasn't really the citizens climate lobby way. They start with gratitude, appreciation and have a conversation to try and understand the positioning and perspective of people within the political parties. They try to build a collaborative relationship and friendship. The issue with that is a lot of politicians aren't honest and open. A lot of them are in the position that the majority of us are in where they're either refusing to accept the problem or believe that they can't do anything because of it. They're heavily pressured, representing tens to hundreds of thousands of individuals within their constituency and challenged on a daily basis to navigate the onslaught of criticism while performing their roles and duties as a representative of the people. And even more so than the majority, I realized that a lot of politicians are in an even deeper state of hopelessness, apathy, and ignorance than the majority of human beings, because they're exposed to the incredible inefficiency of bureaucracy. The incredible discomfort that comes with being in a position of power underneath the microscope of the population constantly faced with the potential of belittlement and exposure by their fellow politicians in a desperate act to try and gain more power and status within their position. It's a very confusing space. And I was there to sit in front of Parliament to observe a session, and I was so embarrassed by what I saw. Members of government... Elected to represent the population bickering, like children. A group of children in a classroom arguing over who gets the Play-Doh and who doesn't would have better conflict resolution abilities than what I observed that day. But while I was down in Victoria, I had the incredible opportunity to mentor under Sonia Furstenó, who has recently become the leader of the provincial greens in BC, an incredibly forward thinking, passionate, compassionate, intelligent, creative, honest, open, authentic individual who stepped into her position was voted into her position because as a citizen of Cowichan Valley, she stood up against pollution She started organizing rallies, started communicating with the government and organizations who were contributing towards the increase in pollution in her area. And eventually, she was voted in by her fellow community members and people within that riding to become a part of the Greens, to represent them in government. She's recently been voted in as the leader and I would love to have her on this podcast sometime. Sonia, if you're listening to this, Expect an interview from me soon. So, I had the opportunity to go down, experience government and politics in the bigger city, to step into life on the coast for a little while, to ride electric bikes through the streets of Victoria, to feel the ocean spray on my face, and to gain confidence and understanding of the issues that we're facing and who I was as an individual. To begin reinforcing this concept of the importance of communication, this incredible opportunity that we have to articulate our beliefs and our ideas and our dreams into a format and medium that other people can observe, interpret, integrate into their identities and perceptions. Communication is one of the most effective ways that we can influence other people in positive or detrimental ways. And this has been expressed repeatedly throughout history, the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King, or the Holocaust with Hitler. Communication is one of the best ways to influence thought and action. After I came back, I met with Abra. I had some experience with the Greens. I got an understanding, a snapshot of who Abra was as an individual, I decided, hell yes, I will represent you. I would love to work on your campaign. Thank you for this opportunity. And so after some back and forth and communication, she ended up coordinating a rental space for me in the basement suite of her mother-in-law in Nelson, BC. So not only did I have the opportunity to start working for the Green Party, which, by the way, I never accepted any money. We never developed any payment methods because I realized after a while that if I was talking about climate action and at the same time being paid by the Green Party, there was a conflict of interest and that could result in a very precarious situation for me as an individual beginning to express myself more and more. I also wanted the freedom to speak clearly about the fucking insanity and the incredible opportunity that we were represented with. And that also would have created a bit of conflict. So I had the opportunity to work with the Green Party for a while, to get involved in campaign management and workflow, to go out and do some public communication and interaction with Abra on behalf of the Green Party, to train myself further in communicating with people. But I also had the incredible opportunity to get more involved with Fridays for Future Nelson, B.C., I moved to Nelson in August, and the global climate strike, the first in history, was planned for September 20th. So we had about a month and a half to get busy. We wanted to make this thing huge, as big as possible, as empowering as possible. And alongside my collaborators, Fridays for Future, we came up with the slogan United we stand, divided we fall. We thought this was brilliant, so we put it on a poster. We start planning all of the aspects of the event, and then we come up with this idea of, well, this is a singular opportunity. We really have to stress that fact. If we don't begin empowering people, then we won't have an opportunity or the tools necessary, the workforce required in order to revolutionize, redesign, reimagine, everything so we come up with this eloquent three-piece statement in order to ensure evolution first we need to engage educate and empower people when those three steps are met evolution is inevitable crisp clean we all feel so energized so excited But how are we gonna make sure that people show up? Well, what avenues do we have? We have social media, we have Instagram and Facebook. Instagram isn't really popping off in Nelson, BC for the Fridays for Future Nelson group, but we have Facebook. A lot of people still use Facebook. So let's start advertising. Three weeks before the strike hit, we started attacking every single public page promoting the strike. This is the end of part one of a three-part episode explaining why. Why am I here? Why do I think the way that I do? And why did I start the Redefining Human podcast? See you in part two. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Redefining Human podcast. I look forward to seeing you in the next. And in the meantime, if you'd like to connect with me or reach out, you can do so at instagram.com redefininghuman if you'd like to support my work and this channel and get access to exclusive content, you can join my patrons at patreon.com redefininghuman. Please remember to share this episode and any other that you find inspiring and empowering with someone that you think would connect with the message. And remember to like, share, and rate on whichever podcast platform you're currently using. Until next time, stay curious.